Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Biden administration has a new top lawyer at the Supreme Court. On Thursday afternoon, the Senate confirmed Elizabeth Prelogger as the Solicitor General of the United States. The vote was 53 to 36. The DOJ had not yet indicated, as we are recording this on Thursday afternoon, whether Prelogger will be at the lectern when the November argument session starts. But the first week of the November argument session is shaping up to be one of the biggest weeks in recent memory. The court will start on November 1st with a pair of cases that weren't on its merits docket at this time last week. United States versus Texas and Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson, a pair of challenges to SB8, Texas's abortion law. Joining me to talk about the Texas abortion cases and uh, a couple of other cases on the docket in November is my editor, James Ramoser of SCOTUS Blog. James, thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how's it going? Uh, you know, it's going well. It's been a busy week, uh, but I imagine you've been uh, even busier. Yes, uh, the Supreme Court has um, a busy time ahead of it, to say the least. So let's start with Texas abortion, which is going to be the first case on November 1st, or the, the first two cases. We've had a lot of discussion about the sh- so-called shadow docket. We've gone from the shadow docket to what some people are now calling the rocket docket. It, it seems like the justices having had all of this criticism or perhaps taking the criticism to heart or saying, okay, you wanted us to have briefing and oral argument on the merits in some of these cases. Let's go ahead and do it. Yeah, it really does seem like the court is responsive to public criticism here. Um, When the challenge to the Texas abortion law first came up to the court on the eve of it taking effect on September 1st, The court kind of sat on its hands for 24 hours and then issued a very cryptic one-paragraph order declining to block the law. That all occurred in the shadow docket. There was no argument, of course. There was very little reasoning offered in the court's order. And I think the court got a lot of blowback from that. And in fact, we saw several justices give speeches um, in the wake of that ruling, kind of adopting a defensive posture. And Sam Alito in particular gave a speech in which he defended the court's use of the shadow docket. Um, But nonetheless, uh, the treatment of that case and the treatment of other high-profile policy issues on the shadow docket over the past few months really has generated a lot of public criticism, particularly from the left. And when the newest iterations of the challenges to the Texas law came to the court um, in the past few weeks, including a new lawsuit brought by the Biden administration, the court obviously handled um, those challenges very differently. Rather than treat them you know, in sort of an unsigned order, they've, as you alluded to, scheduled them for very, very accelerated briefing and oral arguments on Monday. And um, I think we can expect a, a decision on the merits quite quickly. Yeah, the, I mean, this it's really hard to sort of overstate how expedited the briefing is the normal oral argument schedule or merits briefing schedule would be that certs granted and this is even before you get into extensions 
on the merits briefing schedule, but normally after cert is granted, the what we call the top side, the, the petitioners get 45 days to file their brief. The other side gets 35 days to file the brief responding to the top side brief and then you know usually roughly another month to file a reply brief and this is all happening from soup to nuts in 10 days so it really is kind of a rocket docket can you give us just a little bit of of background to make sure everybody's on the same page what is sb8 yeah we should talk about the substantive law because it really is so momentous um earlier this year texas passed a law essentially prohibiting abortions anytime after a doctor can detect fetal cardiac activity. And that includes even embryonic cardiac activity that occurs at around six weeks of pregnancy. It banned abortions after that point. That law undercuts the constitutional right to abortion that was recognized in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, and those cases uh, established uh, a right to obtain an abortion after the point of viability, which is at about 24 weeks of pregnancy. Obviously, the six-week point is way before that. Now, many other states have passed anti-abortion laws um, intending to challenge Roe and Casey. And normally, such laws are subject to pre-enforcement lawsuits and are quickly enjoined by lower courts, and they never actually take effect. But the Texas law, Amy, as you, of course, know, because you've written about this so much already, was crafted in a very unusual way. And what the Texas legislature did is it said that no state officials are responsible for actually enforcing this abortion ban. Rather, the ban is enforced through private litigation brought by any private citizen against anyone who provides an abortion or anyone who aids or abets an abortion. And in fact, anyone who even intends to aid or abet an abortion can be sued under this law they can be sued in, you know, in a private civil lawsuit subject to a minimum of $10,000 in damages if they lose. And so once this law took effect on September 1st, it essentially shut down abortion care in Texas. All clinics closed. They stopped offering abortions because they are uh, rightly frightened of the ruinous liability that would be caused by even a, even the potential for a single lawsuit, let alone a flood of lawsuits that could come under this law. And so that's where things stand on the ground in, in Texas. And of course, Amy, like you're the expert on how these challenges have now come up to the Supreme Court and, and what the Supreme Court is now hearing on Monday. Yeah, so it's, it's complicated. And there are two cases that are we're sort of proceeding on, I'm not going to say parallel tracks, but proceeding on different tracks and made their way to the Supreme Court at the same time, uh, that not necessarily being a coincidence. And so I'll try to do just sort of a quick recap. So the first case, Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, uh, the Whole Woman's Health is an abortion provider in Texas. Uh, the plaintiffs in that case are a group of abortion providers. So they filed a lawsuit in federal court in July before the law was scheduled to go into effect on September 1st, suing um, state officials, a state judge, a county court clerk, and an anti-abortion activist whom they thought would be likely to file a lawsuit under SB 8. Um, that there are a whole bunch of proceedings 
in the district court, uh, to, to summarize, the judge and the county clerk asked the district judge to dismiss the claims against them. They said, we're immune from lawsuit. These providers don't have a legal right to sue. The district court said, no, the, the case against you can go forward. So those defendants appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, um, which then put all of the proceedings in the district court, including a hearing on whether or not to block enforcement of SB 8 on hold. And so that's when many people became aware of the proceedings regarding SB 8 was in late August when the providers came to the Supreme Court and asked the justices to put the law on hold while their challenge was being litigated in the lower court. And so that led to the order was many people's sort of first awareness um, of the shadow docket, sort of the general public. The order issued about 24 hours after SB 8 went into effect. It was a five to four vote. And the majority in that case said, you know, the providers have raised serious questions about whether or not SB 8 is constitutional, but we are still going to allow the law to go into effect right now because the law's unusual enforcement mechanism also raises complex and novel questions. And in particular, there are questions about whether or not these officials whom the providers have named as defendants can be sued at all. So there were four dissenters. The Chief Justice, John Roberts, was one of the dissenters joining the three liberal justices. And he said he would have put the law on hold so that the courts can consider whether or not states can enact these kinds of laws that allow them, in essence, to avoid responsibility for their laws. Each of the liberal justices wrote their own dissents. Justice Sonia Sotomayor's was probably the the most passionate she described the court's decision not to block the law as stunning she said the law is flagrantly unconstitutional so then the case went back to the lower courts the fifth circuit the court of appeals scheduled oral argument for december and the providers came back to the supreme court in early uh, sort of mid-september and said in essence we'd like you to not wait for the Court of Appeals. We'd like you to go ahead and decide right now essentially the question that the Chief Justice had flagged in his dissent, which is whether or not Texas can insulate SB 8 from review by a federal court by outsourcing the power to enforce the law to the public. And the justices just kind of let their request to expedite consideration of their petition sit there for a while. And we were kind of wondering what was going on. And it turns out that they were in all likelihood waiting for the other case to catch up. Um, That case is United States versus Texas. And that is the challenge filed by the Biden administration after the justices didn't put the law on hold in early September. Um, And there are sort of two different arguments that the Biden administration makes in this case. Um, One of them is is just that this law is clearly unconstitutional and the federal government is sort of stepping in because Texas is violating the rights of the general public. Um, And then the other argument is that the federal government has these obligations to provide abortions in some 
unique scenarios when you're, for example, dealing with inmates in federal prisons, um, people who are in immigration custody in Texas, and Texas is standing in the way of the federal government's ability to do that. And so a district judge in Texas agreed to put the law on hold at the beginning of October. Um, the Texas then appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which put the district judge's order on hold. So in essence, kept the law in effect, reinstated the ban on abortions. And then the federal government came to the Supreme Court asking the judge to reinstate the district court's order, again, put the law on hold. And the justices in an order that they issued on Friday afternoon, October 22nd, declined to put the law on hold, said we're not going to decide that right now, but we are going to fast track both the government's appeal and the provider's appeal and hear oral arguments in 10 days on November 1st. So Amy, obviously these cases directly implicate abortion rights uh, because as we've talked about, you know, abortion doesn't really exist currently uh, in, in, in Texas uh, under this law. But the court in hearing these cases and in deciding these cases will weigh in on whether Roe and Casey, can, you know, continue to be good law. Um, or do you think that the court is going to see these as narrow procedural questions and leave the substantive question about Roe and Casey for the Mississippi abortion case that the court is scheduled to hear a month from now? It's kind of the big question. Texas spends some of its time, not a lot of its time, making the argument about why this ban doesn't violate the Constitution. Texas had actually asked the justices if they were to take up the cases to also decide whether or not to overrule Roe and Casey. And the justices didn't do that. But the providers and the government really focus on the more procedural aspects of it. You, know, I think in part because their argument is that under Roe and Casey, the substance of SB8 is so clearly unconstitutional. So, you know, something we haven't gotten into yet, but the justices in December are going to hear oral argument in a case that presents the question of whether or not to overrule Roe and Casey in a much more straightforward manner. And it seems like they may not do that in this case. I mean, they specifically directed the government to brief an entirely different question, to just brief the question of whether or not the federal government can bring a lawsuit against Texas and the state officials in federal court. You know, they definitely are, are focused on that question in the suit brought by the Biden administration. In the suit brought by Whole Woman's Health, they didn't change the question presented. Whole Woman's Health had focused on the question of whether or not Texas could insulate its laws from review. You know, In the question presented, there is a mention of the idea that the law is unconstitutional. And so arguably the question of whether or not SB8 is unconstitutional is before the justices in that sense, but it doesn't really seem like what anyone's focused on. And so I think that's actually one of the big questions for the oral argument is, is how much are they focused on the ban itself and how much are they focused on the procedural mechanism, the enforcement scheme? So I do think that 
the enforcement scheme question, although it sounds arcane, is really important and will be important even to some of the justices who are on record as being very opposed to abortion rights. Because I think there is a worry that other states can adopt this kind of structure to curtail other types of constitutional rights that other states might disfavor. You could imagine a state law in Illinois or New York or California that adopts exactly the same kind of SBH structure, but authorizes private lawsuits against anyone who owns a gun, you know, or anyone who engages in certain you know, religious practices or something like that, and use the private enforcement scheme to deputize citizens to curtail religious rights or Second Amendment rights. And I have to say that Slippery Slope, I think, may get traction, you know, in this case, even among some of the more conservative justices. And, you know, I could see a realm in which the court is really skeptical of this regime in general without actually weighing in on the substance of Roe and Casey. What do you, what do you think? I think that's right. At, you know, at the cert before judgment stage, when the court was considering whether or not to leapfrog the Fifth Circuit and grant the petition by Whole Woman's Health, there was a friend of the court brief on this very point by a gun rights group called the Firearms Policy Coalition. And they said that this approach could just as easily be used to restrict First or Second Amendment rights. And so, you know, we're not taking any position on abortion, but we don't think you can circumvent judicial review of constitutional rights in this way. As Justice Breyer likes to say, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, I think is the phrase that he likes to use. Yeah. So since we're talking about Second Amendment rights, should we at least briefly spend a a few minutes talking about the other really blockbuster case coming up, which is the Second Amendment case involving a New York gun law uh, being argued on Wednesday? Yes. I mean, this was the blockbuster of the November argument session until until October 22nd, when the court announced it was going to take up the Texas abortion case. This was the moment that gun rights activists have been waiting for for 11 years. You know, in 2008, there was uh, District of Columbia versus Heller. The Supreme Court said that in the District of Columbia, at least, there's a right to have a gun in your home for self-defense. And then Two years later, in McDonald versus City of Chicago, the court confirmed that this right applies to everyone, not just in the District of Columbia. And you know, then they spent the next decade trying to get the court to say more about the scope of the Second Amendment, and in particular, the scope of the right to carry a gun outside of the home for self-defense. And there was another case also with the name New York State Rifle and Pistol Association back in 2019, as some of our listeners, people who follow the court may recall. It was a challenge to a New York City rule that banned even people who had a licensed handgun from taking the handgun outside of the city. And the Supreme Court agreed to review that rule. And New York City, I think, realizing that that rule was likely not going to pass constitutional muster, changed the rule. So the court deemed the case moot. The the dispute was was no longer a live controversy after the court heard oral argument. Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion. He agreed that the court was right to dismiss the case as moot, 
But he said, you know, we've, we've got all these other Second Amendment cases. We should really take one of them. And everyone thought they would take one at the time, but the court did not. And the conventional wisdom was that there were four votes to grant cert and take up a Second Amendment case, but they weren't sure whether or not there was a fifth, uh, whether or not the Chief Justice was going to be on board for a more expansive view of gun rights. And then Justice Ginsburg passed away in, in 2020, was replaced by Justice Barrett, who had written a dissent in a case involving the Second Amendment, suggested that, that she would have a more expansive view of the Second Amendment, and the court took up this new case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Okay, and so for people unfamiliar with the background of the case, this involves a New York State law that requires people who want to carry a concealed weapon to get a license from the state. And in order to get such a license, the state requires that an applicant show what's called proper cause or a special need for self-protection. So it's not enough to just say, I would like to carry a concealed weapon because you know, I have a general fear for my safety or I'm a gun enthusiast. You actually have to show that you have been the subject of recurrent threats or the repeated victim of a robbery as a business owner or something very particular that distinguishes you from the general public. And so the two plaintiffs in this case applied for licenses to carry concealed handguns, and they were rejected. They were at least rejected for unrestricted licenses, right? They both have restricted licenses to carry guns for like hunting and target practice. One of the two plaintiffs is allowed to carry a gun on his way to and from work, but they're not allowed to just generally carry a concealed handgun anywhere they go in public. And so the subject of the case is, is whether those denials violate the Second Amendment. And in particular, that key phrase, bear arms, right, in the, in the Second Amendment, which guarantees the right to keep and bear arms. And I guess the argument is that, you know, Heller and McDonald um, talked about the keeping of weapons in the home. And, and this will be the first time that the court can really elaborate on, on what that phrase bare arms means and, and, and how far it extends. I mean, but one thing that I'll be watching for, Amy, is just, you know, how far the court goes in this decision and to what extent its eventual decision will implicate various gun control measures, not just in New York, but around the country, because many states have licensing regimes that are similar to New York. And, you know, uh, supporters of, of gun control, you know, have raised the alarm and, and said that if the court adopts a robust interpretation of the Second Amendment here, various other types of gun control regulations could be in, in jeopardy. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting case because both sides really agree that when you're talking about the right to bear arms, that, that there is a right to, to have the, a gun and to carry a gun outside of the home. They just disagree pretty emphatically on what kinds of restrictions the government can place on that right. And both sides argue that the history of gun rights and gun restrictions in England and the United States favor their reading. You know, people who have looked at this case pretty closely say that really could come down to the history. I watched the Georgetown University Law Center preview of the 
upcoming term, Roman Martinez said that it could be a closer case than you might think based on the history. But, you know, as you say, there's also the question of whether or not the court looks beyond just concealed carry and says more about the scope of the Second Amendment. It is remarkable to me how many pages in the briefing are about parsing the language in literally 14th century English statutes. I mean, like, what do you make of this, Amy? Like, we have an originalist court. The court has said that that the Second Amendment needs to be interpreted according to its original meaning in original terms. And as you allude to, that involves looking at sources around the time of the founding. It involves looking at the history of the right before the founding, going back to the common law in England. But it really just differs very markedly from the way that most lower courts who have approached this issue have, have, have treated their analysis. And so if you zoom out you know, 20,000 feet, it can seem befuddling that you know, the 14th century, like statute of Northampton or whatever, about like whether you can like carry guns in the town square. W- what relevance does this have? I mean, I think ordinary people would wonder what relevance this has to 21st century gun control laws in America. Well, it does, particularly when, you know, you, as somebody else at the Georgetown Preview said, we're looking at all this history before you get to the idea of what constitutional test applies to these restrictions and do they pass them you know we're we're looking at the history first and then we'll then we'll decide whether or not we even need to apply this test and whether or not they pass them like we haven't even talked about whether or not strict scrutiny applies yet We're, we're just looking at the history first yeah, I just I just know way too much about the 1348 statue of Northampton and, and what it said about gun rights in, in England than, than I ever thought I, I would I would know. Yes, it, it should make for an interesting argument. <laughs> I'm impressed that you're actually absorbing it because I'm not. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and then looking ahead, one of the arguments that was scheduled for November 1st but was bumped to the second week of the argument session is a case called Ramirez versus Collier, which was the, we thought the original rocket docket case for the term. This was the case of a Texas inmate. This is like, this is a very Texas themed argument session. Texas brings a lot of litigation to the Supreme Court these days. Healthcare, election litigation, there's just a lot, everything involves Texas for some reason. Yes. But, but this, this setting seems especially Texas-flavored. Uh, a Texas inmate who wanted to have his, not only to have his spiritual advisor with him in the execution chamber, but have his spiritual advisor able to pray out loud and place his hands on him while he was executed. And this is sort of the culmination of a series of cases involving a spiritual advisors in the execution chamber. And so this case came to the Supreme Court that the inmate was seeking a stay right after the court declined to put SB8 on hold at the beginning of September. And I feel like this was a little bit of a reaction to that, that the court said, okay, fine, you know, we're going to stay the execution and we're going to figure this out. We're going to hold oral argument at the, at the time they said in either the October or the November argument session. So the case got bumped to 
November 9th from November 1st. The other case scheduled for November 1st got moved to the December session. That was Shin versus Ramirez. Yeah, I'm, I'm really going to be watching the Ramirez versus Collier case. It's a very interesting issue about the religious rights of people on death row in, in their final moments. And like you say, Amy, the calendaring issues here prove that the court has the ability to act quickly and hear cases quickly on the merits. And the justification for you know the past few years of shadow docket activity involving abbreviated briefing and short, unsigned, unexplained orders has been that the emergency nature of certain litigation requires that sort of treatment. And that's undoubtedly true in some cases. But I think that the way that the court has chosen to handle the second iteration of the Texas abortion litigation, the way that it's chosen to handle the death penalty um, uh, case involving Ramirez, show that the court really does have the ability to um, to use a form of a, of, a, of a rocket docket and decide emergency cases relatively quickly while also receiving full briefing and full argument and issuing reasoned opinions that explains the parties and to the public and to the lower courts what exactly the Supreme Court's doing. So, you know, I think regardless of how you feel about the merits of many of these cases, I think that we should should all encourage more of that sort of uh, treatment by the court. Indeed, we should. All right, James Ramoser, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Amy. I will uh, talk to you soon. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.